Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Now that we can be pretty sure that there's no life on Mars, the billionaire Elon Musk is planning to build a base there. But is SpaceX a vanity project or a great leap forward? With me to talk about Mars, alien life and space in general is Alok Jha, the science correspondent of The Economist and host of the Jab podcast at that publication. Alok, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, it's great to be with you. First off, uh, a question from our producer, Yelena. Is it true that all the COVID-19 in the world could fit into a Coke can? That's probably true, uh, but by, I mean, it depends how you ask that question. If you, do, if by you, which you mean, you can if you collected up all of the viruses uh, and put them uh, put them together, it's probably true. You could put them into a coke can. But the um, the where that that fact takes you is quite interesting because you may or may not know that uh, that all of the atoms there that make up you or anything else in the universe are mostly empty space. It's like 99.9999999 multiple nines percent empty space. So if you squeeze out all the empty space out of all the atoms in all of the people in the world, you could fit all of that into a sugar cube. Right. Okay. Is that why we could all, is that anything to do with the fact we could all be sucked into a black hole very easily? I mean, it's, 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 it's all physics. Yes. In that <laughs> sense, but pro- probably quite different physics. Yes. <laughs> if only we could all fit it into a Coke can, uh, then our problems would all be over. Just chuck it out into a black hole. That would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be fantastic. Let's talk about Mars. Because this week there was a lot of excitement when NASA flew a drone helicopter over the planet after Perseverance, the latest Mars rover, landed on February and sent back some pretty amazing pictures. Apart from pure scientific curiosity, which is a perfectly valid reason in itself, of course, what kinds of things are we discovering from the Mars mission? So Perseverance landed on Mars in February, and it's kind of just running its, uh, kicking its tyres at the moment. It sent some interesting pictures back of the location it's in. And um, it's not really done a huge amount of science yet. Um, it's going to be doing that in the coming months and years. It's got a long life ahead of it. I mean, it's it's a it's in a long line of rovers and orbiters that have been sent to the planet to try and understand the atmosphere, the geology, the the magnetic fields, the whether there's water on the planet or not. And so, Perseverance itself is is, is equipped to look for signs of life. Um, and, and if you look back in the history of all of Mars exploration, um, NASA's Mars exploration specifically from the 70s onwards, um, it's all been 
asking this question, is there life on Mars? Has there ever been life on Mars? And Mars being the closest planet to Earth, it's, it's I mean, I say simple, but it's, it's the simplest of the planets to send something to, to actually do experiments on. You could, the rest of the planets, uh, apart from Venus, perhaps, you can you have to sort of look from a very far distance. And so it's, you get much less information. Whereas on Mars, you can send things, you can do experiments, you can sample things. And so for decades, we've been doing that. And and then the, the longer term question is, is there life on Mars? And, and the reason people might be interested in that is because if you're interested in how life started on Earth, or why life started on Earth, or whether there's life anywhere in the, in the universe, it's interesting to study Mars because three and a half billion years ago, when life started on Earth, that's what we think, our, the Earth and Mars were very similar planets. You know, they had water on their surface, they had a, a clement atmosphere, you know, not, not dissimilar distances from the sun. Um, obviously, now there's a rich abundance of myriad forms of life on Earth, but so far, we've seen nothing on Mars that's living. And so the question is, how did that happen? Why Why is there such a difference? Until now, the missions that were sent to Mars have been looking at habitability. Is Mars the kind of place where life might have started? In other words, is there water? You know, Is there anything in the atmosphere that would allow metabolic processes to happen? But none of those experiments have been actually able to detect life if it was there on Mars. If life was there on Mars, save for you know a creepy crawly crawling over a camera lens you would not be able to actually detect life on mars until now perseverance has experiments on it and cameras that would be able to detect things like mats uh, like a microbial mats of fossils uh, which existed on earth a long time ago which are, are some of the early signs of life so when when very early forms of life you know become fossils they create these sort of layers in the rock that are very telltale for life. They're called stromatolites. So the, the perseverance can look look for those in the area that it's landed. Um, it can also do things like look for specific, um, which has a much more sophisticated chemistry set to look for the molecules associated with life. So that's what perseverance is going to do. Coming missions to Mars, there are a few rovers sort of planned, one by the European Space Agency. What that one will do in two years' time is be able to dig into the surface of Mars to see if there's anything living underneath the surface. Because so far we've not we've not done that. Mars itself has a very thin atmosphere, and the light from the sun has a lot of UV radiation, which basically has sterilised the surface. So if anything was living there um, recently, it would have been sterilised and destroyed. But underneath the surface, a couple of meters underneath, you know, the UV light can't get under there. So, so the idea of the, the next rover is to dig underground and see if any microbes live there or if there are any fossils or anything down there. All of this is just to try and understand what conditions make it so that life can start. We've only got one example of life, which is life on Earth. So the, the perseverance and future missions are going to be specifically looking for signs of life. They haven't done that yet, though. So thinking about this, the space travel, it used to be done by governments, but now Elon Musk, the Tesla chief, has got involved with his SpaceX company. And Musk is clear about his plans to ideally establish a settlement on Mars. Mm. Does this have a chance of happening? I mean, uh, you never predict the, you should never predict the future, right? Um, especially in science, because you don't know where it's going to go. So um, I'm not going to say that it's not going to happen. It's incredibly difficult for something like Elon Musk's plan to settle on Mars in the timescale that he's talking about. So just to give listeners a bit of background, Elon Musk essentially wants to, by the middle or the end of this century, have a settlement on Mars with potentially a million people on it. Part of it is the classic boosterish Silicon Valley, you know, let's aim for the stars kind of ambition. And, you know, who's going to, I think it would be wrong to 
to be negative about people who are just very, very optimistic um, and ambitious about these sorts of things, right? And and m- many people in the world are ambitious in ways that, you know, I, I don't think I'd be able to achieve, but it doesn't mean that they can't achieve those things. So let's let's put that caveat there. On the practical side of it, it's very, very difficult to get to Mars. It takes six months um, when you when the planets are in close alignment. Um, so, uh, you know, so perseverance. The reason, for example, that perseverance landed on Mars in, in February, and that the Chinese um, mission to Mars, the first um, rover, uh, arrived uh, also in February, and that the United Arab Emirates also sent their first mission and it arrived in February. It's because the planets Earth and Mars aligned in, in their orbits such that. They're very close together. And so then at that point, it takes six months to get between the planets. Um, any other times it can take much, much longer. So if you're looking for a short transit to Mars, that's, that's six months. And, and that only happens once every two years or so. So, you know, you're limited in the number of launches you, you, you can send in a reasonable amount of time. Then there's, of course, the problem that we've never actually sent humans to Mars, not even a, an explorer astronaut. Um, never mind a million people. Uh, and you might argue that, you know, in 50 years time, this might be possible. And let's be honest, in 50 years of space, um, from, you know, the, the beginning of the space age to now, it's only about 60 or 70 years. We've done amazing things, but human spaceflight has not really got much further than the moon. Um, and that was once in the 60s. And that took a lot of effort. It took about 3% of the America's GDP to do that. So you need a lot of money, a lot of uh, uh, research, a lot of uh, willpower. Fine. Imagine you can get the money to do that. Imagine that you had, uh, you could build the spaceships. You still need to do answer a lot of unopened questions when it comes to humans um, uh, on Mars. So the journey to Mars will be incredibly physically taxing. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of space, the radiation in space. Um, what, what effect will that have on the astronauts? The psychology of the trips will be very, very interesting. We haven't sent people stuck in a basically a tin can for six months and then come maybe many, many years after that. Uh, what, what, would these people um, survive together for that long? Would they just destroy each other? These are serious concerns that space agencies are worried about. Then you talk, talk thinking about when you get to Mars, how would you build a colony there? We've never done that. Um, we've never even put our toe in the water. Now, none of these challenges are impossible to achieve. And, you know, if given... 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, I could totally imagine that you would have all of these problems solved and colonies on Mars. It's the within 50 years thing that I have a problem with because it just, the, 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 the physics and the, the challenges are huge. The one, one other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, uh, this is, this is, this argument, I would have made this argument a year ago and two years ago when Elon Musk says these, these sorts of ambitious things. The thing is that there are lots of physics and science challenges to, to engineering challenges to getting all this done. But then, you know, when the pandemic came along, you know, 14 months ago, you'd never have thought there was a vaccine in 12 months. Um, it just wasn't possible, um, but in anyone's mind. But we, here we are. We have a vaccine. We have several vaccines and they're being distributed. And it shows you what can happen if you put willpower in, in a particular direction. Even with that, though, I don't think that something like Elon Musk's uh, ambition, ambitious plan is possible. But, you know, uh, it doesn't stop you from dreaming. I promise to talk to you about extraterrestrial life, uh, particularly about the time a few years ago, there was some excitement when astronomers spotted a strangely shaped object passing through our solar system. And some scientists suggested it could be of alien origin. Tell us what made them think that. So you're talking about Muamua, 
yes. which um, is is. Uh, I'm glad of, you said it and not me. Yeah, I'm I don't not know if sure how to pronounce word. it. I think that's the correct way of saying it. Muamua. It's a Hawaiian word and it means scout. It was discovered in 2017 and it was flying through the solar system. Initially, people thought it might be a comet or an asteroid. These things fly through the solar system all the time. But generally speaking, we know about them and we know all their orbits. Um, but this Muamua just didn't fit any any known object. And it behaved in a sort of funny way, which was that it came into this sort of inner solar system and then it sort of accelerated out. Um, the initial thinking around it was that it was an interstellar object. So it'd come from outside the solar system. Um, and, and these things do I mean, these things we assume must come through the solar system all the time. The universe is a massive place. And so there's going to be all sorts of objects that are flying around and we're going to have interstellar objects flying through our solar system all the time, but we've never seen one before. And so Oumuamua was was the first one. Um, And then various other astronomers came up with a few more radical hypotheses that perhaps it wasn't just a rock from the region in in between stars, interstellar space. The way that it behaved suggested that it might be some sort of technology. And by technology, meaning uh, like a, a bit of detritus from from a, a spaceship or, or some other bit of technology that meant that it behaved in this very strange way. This didn't come from crackpot scientists. It came from some of the well, from one particular scientist in, in Harvard University, Avi Loeb, who's the what was the head of the astronomy department in Harvard for a while. Uh, he's just written a book about this, actually. And he lays out the hypothesis that to explain all the strange behaviours of the Oumuamua, one plausible way of explaining it all would be that it's a light sail, which is a very thin material that um, essentially uses the light from stars to move so imagine how a normal sail on, on, a, on a on a boat um, would would be blown by the wind instead of uh, the air molecules is the wind it's, it's, it's light light particles is the wind and, and these these things theoretically can be built uh, we, we can build them on earth and, and within a couple of decades we'll be using them to move spaceships around the solar system so th- these things are aren't impossible so Avi Loeb suggested that perhaps a more advanced civilization had built one of these things and that it had snapped off one of the spaceships or whatever and had was was kind of now floating around in, in space. The indication being that this is um indication of extra intelligent, advanced extraterrestrial life elsewhere. Now, it's not something that you just say without lots of blowback, and he's got a lot of it. And most I would say the majority of astronomers are less inclined to believe there's a that this is actually a, an extraterrestrial object uh, and have argued vociferously with him um, which he acknowledges in his book and don't agree with the fact that you know the conclusion is that, that this must be an et technology um, i mean mo- most scientific research works like this isn't it you, you find something odd out and then you have to find ways of explaining it which either fit with your current theory current theories of, of nature or if they don't fit with your current theories of nature, you come up with a new one and then let other people try and destroy that theory, uh, that idea. And if they can't destroy that idea, then that idea, that new idea becomes, gains more credibility and maybe replaces the old idea. That's kind of how science works. So arguments like this are pretty typical, but this one, this particular argument, because it's so high profile and, you know, you're talking about aliens, you know, that's, that's quite emotional and 
it's argumentative and it's not yeah. something that you, know, you, you can claim without a massive amount of evidence. Yeah, it, it's an interesting book to read, actually, um, Extraterrestrial by um, Avi Loeb, if you're interested in this. Um, and you should read it with a pinch of salt, but it's it's a serious scientist making a serious argument, but it might not be true. The odds are, though, that there is some form of alien life out there, isn't isn't there, given the enormous size of the universe? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the odds are, but I'll, my feeling is that the, the universe is, yeah, it's it's bigger than you can possibly comprehend. There are trillions and trillions of planets out there um, in our own solar, in our own galaxy, and then there are you know, billions and trillions of galaxies out there. So the numbers look good. You know, the number of opportunities for life to start look good. But what we don't know, and this is kind of the bit which, you know, is a bit clouded, is how common it is that life starts. You know, just to just to sort of put that into context, you know, if it turns out that there are one million planets in the uh, in the universe. There are many, many more, but let's just for, for numbers' sake. So if there are one million planets in the universe, that's a lot of opportunities for life to start. Uh, let's imagine that ten percent of them are amenable to life. In other words, they have liquid water and they're you know the right distance from their star, so that you know they, they can they have good energy flows and all of that sort of stuff. That's a hundred thousand possible possibilities for life to start. So that's that's the, that, that we have this number that there's lots and lots of planets out there. What we don't know is how common it is that life starts. What if, if it turns out that life is a, you know, one in every 50 planets, life will start. Then that, those odds are pretty good. It's 100,000 planets where life could start. And we know that the odds are one in 50 uh, that, that life starts somewhere. So there's lots of planets where life could have started. And so one of them is going to survive. Well, we know one. We're on it. But what if it turns out in the future, we discover that, that the odds of life starting on a planet are one in a trillion and we've only got 100,000 planets, then the odds don't look so good, you know, even though there are 100,000 planets. So we don't know the full numbers yet, but it would be perplexing if there wasn't life elsewhere. It would be, as a physicist, it would be odd to think that we're somehow unique on this planet. And, you know, the, 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 the history of physics is all about making humans realise that we're not anything special and finding life elsewhere would be the ultimate expression of that. But the question is, you know, not just well, is there life, but has it persisted enough to be in contact with anything else? Or has it, you know, remained as amoeba or even dinosaur or squirrel level? And then how long did it survive before destroying itself, isn't it? I think yeah. there seems to be a general feeling that societies, civilizations, anything like us is perhaps not going to last very long because of our ability to destroy ourselves. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head, actually. It's not just about whether life started and evolved, because that's assuming that everything, all life evolves in the same way and gets to a point where forever, then forevermore, it can it can communicate and be, exist, which is not true at all, because there's no reason to think that life has started multiple times all over the universe, got to even more advanced stages than us, then just destroyed itself, because... You know, we, we've kind of just, humans have just reached that stage, haven't we, haven't we, in the last 50 years, which is that we've been existed on this planet for several hundred thousand years. Civilization has been around for t tens of thousands of years. And nuclear weapons have been around since the 50s and 60s. You know, with those weapons, we can destroy everything on the planet. We've only been able to do that for the last 50 years. Now, who's to say that in the next 50 years, we don't actually come good on that horrible promise and destroy everything? In which case, as far as anything else in our region of the solar system or in our region of the galaxy is concerned, humans never existed, you know? So 
you know, it, it, the, the time element is also incredibly important. And especially given that the universe is now 14 billion years old ish and has a long, long future ahead of it. Humans living for a few hundred thousand years is not even a blink of an eye. What effect do you think it would have on the world and people's belief systems if we knew for sure that alien life existed? So my, my view on this is a little bit biased, I think. I think people will be really interested and excited. But I say that because I would be really interested and excited, <laughs> right? I, I, uh, I've been think, I think about these things a lot and um, I'm just fascinated by astronomy and astrobiology. It's one of the most exciting fields in science right now. And like, it's just, it's just really interesting in terms of the technology and the, the combination of different disciplines, you know, you've got theoretical biologists and cosmologists and astronomers all sort of trying to mesh their ideas together to, to, to sort of come up with theories for what life is and how you might detect it from many, many light years away. Then you've got instrumentation experts designing amazing machines to be able to detect these things. So all of that is just fascinating and brilliant and clever. And I think, I think I, I find all that interesting. Now, the big question they're asking is, is there life elsewhere? And what does that mean, you know, for the rest of us? I mean, philosophically, from a religious point of view, morally, it, it changes a lot because if we find out that we're not alone um, in the universe, I mean, for someone like me, I, I, my, my next question is, oh, well, what kind of life is it? You know, how different is it to ours? What kinds of what kind of rich diversity is there out there? If you're interested in zoology on this planet, then surely you'd be interested in zoology elsewhere, exobiology. So I think people will be interested and excited. Now, I have colleagues at The Economist and friends and others who literally don't care at all. They, they don't care about these things. And they're smart people who, who are interested in all sorts of things. And it, I, I honestly can't get into their heads. I just don't understand. Why would you not be interested in knowing this? And it's like, oh, I just can't be excited about it. I wouldn't bother. And so uh, uh, the more I think about it, I think perhaps there'll be two sets of responses, right? If it turns out that we've discovered a microbe or a space squirrel somewhere, <laughs> not to use your earlier <laughs> phrase, um, and, and that's it, then it's kind of exciting. I think even for the skeptics, even it'd be exciting for about a week. And then after that, once you realize that that's all, you're not going to get any more information you can't contact them. They're not going to contact you. You're not going to visit them. Or vice versa. No space squirrels designed a spaceship or a radio antenna. Then that's it. I think people will just get bored and carry on with their lives, won't they? Um, if it turns out that it's intelligent life or that there's technology out there, or we discover that, you know, there's a, there's a civilization that's been waiting for us to contact them. I mean, you know, we're talking Star Trek type expansion of our, of our, of our place in the universe and, and being able to somehow learn new physics to contact them. I mean, I think that would get a lot more people excited, don't you? I think you're quite a techno-optimist, aren't you? I mean, I get the impression you're quite positive about the way things are going. Is there anything you're pessimistic about in the way that we're developing technology? As you say, so fast, and what we've done in the last 50 years is absolutely extraordinary in terms um, of speed. I, I'm an optimist about the fact that people are clever and they'll come up with solutions to things. I mean, I think that those solutions might cause problems. So I don't think that all technology is necessarily automatically positive i think I'm, I'm optimistic about people's ingenuity and creativity so that's that, that you're right about that i mean the, the 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 huge technological challenge the societal challenge that you know and is that in the background to all of this is climate change we can't find we can't seem to come together to find a solution to it right now um so I, i'm i'm very pessimistic about that because you know if the world decided to just 
sit down and sort this out. <laughs> I know how as we did with sounds. COVID, yeah. As we did with COVID, I was going. That's where I was going. As we had to with COVID because it was literally life and death in the moment. Then you can see that technology and other things could be brought to bear on this. Like, I mean, there are so many ideas for things that could fix many, many uh, a load of the problems we've we've had to we've created in the past century and a half you could you could replace the entire electrical grid with green energy tomorrow if you wanted to if you well maybe not tomorrow that's that's too quick but but you could do it very very quickly if every single person every single politically decided that they wanted to if you spent the money if you'd spent you know like, like we spent money on vaccines the last year you throw money at this problem and all the scientific minds in the world you could do things like you know green aeroplanes and fix the energy infrastructure you know if you didn't have oil, uh, fossil fuel lobby groups and um, sort of dragging dragging you backwards and if you didn't have businesses that have vested interests in older types of technology and, and things so technology is it takes you into the future but then it also creates problems those problems won't get fixed by technology alone they require people to want to want those solutions rather than just um, it's not going to be the technology forces you into those direct directions uh, it's about how we use them all Alok, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. And you can listen to more Alok on the Economist's Jab podcast. Thanks for listening. Remember, there's a new bunker every day from Monday to Thursday and a new Saturday edition too. We're moving to the weekend so it doesn't clash with our sibling show. Oh God, what now? Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>